Hello there, fans of Asset Horizon. If you are listening to this episode on its release date, which is a Friday, uh, January 27th, in fact, uh, that means tomorrow and the day after Saturday and Sunday, we will be doing our Deleuze and Gattari reading group reading A Thousand Plateaus, Postulates of Linguistics, an exciting plateau, one of my favorite pieces of writing by Deleuze and Gattari. But in addition to that, we have other reading groups as well. We have the Bitai reading group. We also do a reading group on Zero Books Patreon account. We'd just like you to join us somehow or show us support somehow. Just throw a buck at us, get something from the merch store, grab the tarot deck I created last year, or you could simply just share this episode on social media. In any case, let's not wait a minute more. We have Catherine Malibu, one of our favorite guests here on the show, and she's going to talk to us again about ontological anarchy and her new book, Stop Thief. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today with us in the studio, we have preeminent philosopher Catherine Malibu, of Catherine Malibu fame, author of many exciting works of philosophy, including The Future of Hegel from 1996, and more recently, Plasticity, The Promise of Explosion, put out last year. Today, we return to a discussion previously featured on our show on the topic of ontological anarchy. It was a polarizing discussion for some of our listeners when confronted with the provocation that real anarchism has not yet been philosophized. Today's discussion will serve partly as a clarification of the argument, but we also hope to delve deeper into a new theme, the dawning of a new anarchy against the backdrop of a de facto cyber anarchy. All of this is detailed in Catherine's new book, Stop Thief, which is currently being translated into English. And before we begin, please like or subscribe wherever you are listening. And Catherine, I would like to welcome you back on the show today. Thank you. Now, I'm not sure if you know about this, but when we finished the, the last episode that we did, which I think was about two years ago, I kind of baited you into agreeing to the premise that real anarchism has not yet been philosophized, and that created quite a stir amongst anarchists and philosophers alike. So partly what we want to do here today is clarify that, yeah, that statement. Of course. And as I know, you're a student of Adam, or I'm sorry, Adam is a student of Yeah, yours. I'm a student of Adam. So. That's true. That's true. It the goes both ways. The fault, yes. Exactly. So with that said, I'm going to let Adam take over and lead the discussion. But of course, we all have questions and we have B with us here today as well. We'd like to welcome everyone. Just to start off, I mean, uh, one of the things that I found most striking about the, the opening chapters of Stop Thief or Overlear, because it's not, I guess, not fully translated to English, was, was this distinction you make between the sort of more Marxist project or passion for the historical versus the anarchist focus on the geographical, which is a geography which always tries to enter into a dialogue with erected structures upon the scenery and then to reduce them to a proper kind of horizontality. Could you just start off with explaining this relationship between anarchy and geography, particularly in relation to a, a distinction which in my mind is always quite firm in these discussions, which is a, a distinction between the map and the territory, sort of the anarchic territory versus the rigidity of the map, the cartography that imposes all the forms and structures upon the areas in which we live and stratifies them into, into codes and hierarchies. 
Yes, of course. And you're right that Deleuze and Guattari, when they write about territory and deterritorialization and, and things, they have anarchism in, in, in mind, of course. But first of all, anarchy means literally without beginning and without commandments. It means then that there is no privileged point of departure. You cannot explain things by by coming back to their cause. So it means that uh, referring to historical dates, historical beginnings, historical events don't in reality explain anything. The theoretical space of anarchism is, as you said, autographic territory. It's, it's, it's a plane. I mean, it's a, it's a horizontal space in which everything is on the same level. And so in order to circulate in that plane space, you have to develop a certain sense of geography, which is, first of all, walking. And so many anarchists like Elise Reclus or Kropotkin were wanderers. They had this uh, practice of walking and they understood their own method as a theoretical equivalent of wandering. Would you say at all there's a distinction between cartography and geography and how you depict anarchism? Does the anarchist flatten the horizontal, vertical, or the distinction between, say, a map and a territory, a conceptual mapping which places certain entities or ideas under certain categories or principles versus a sort of a different way of experiencing the world in this ontologically anarchic manner? I think, yes, I, I think it's not really a decision. Even if they constitute this wandering, let's say, into a method yeah. of exploration, it is not a decision. It is the idea that the earth, Eliseo Drew's main book is called The Man and the Earth. It's the idea that the earth has no privileged region or points that between France, England, Asia, India, etc., there's no privileged point of view. And that all regions, all reliefs, all rivers, all seas, etc., are of equal importance. So they're not flattening anything. And maybe I use this term flat, but it's not a good one. It's not that space is flat. It is that geography, I mean, the, the space of the earth is even, which is not exactly the same thing. There's no, no privileged point of departure, and particularly the West. The West is not the place to start with. And that's why Reclus went a lot to the US and Kropotkin, as you know, was working in Siberia in that type of forest in which you only find a kind of entanglement of different trees and, and grass, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't know how to start. This is what, what they are trying to understand. Particularly fitting that we, that this anarchism then kind of fundamentally undermines the Hegelian privileging, which is, it's a historical one that absolutely reflects back on the geography and the know. Maybe it's my, my great soothing to read this after spending about three years trying to make Hegel an anarchist, which uh, to listeners, yeah, even, you, can, you cannot if, do. <laughs> I mean, even if, strangely enough, I, I don't think that Hegel starts from any, of course, he mentions French Revolution and, and the Reformation, etc. But as you know, his, his definition of a beginning is very problematic. Hmm? The beginning is always something that is given after the fact. So, well, but that's another discussion. Yeah. 
Yeah, Catherine, I was hoping that you could sort of give us a general arc of the evolution of the term anarchy, particularly with Aristotle's politics and the theorization of the arche and the presupposition, the counter presupposition of the anarche being part of that theory. And then, of course, later Proudhon's appropriation of that term and his declaration of him being an anarchist, was, which not only involves an appropriation, but a kind of kind of a conceptual turn within that term. And then, of course, we're looking at the work that you're doing, Derrida, Rancier, Agamben, and all of those folks, you know, clearly working within the domain of anarchic thinking, but not claiming that term. I Maybe we could just kind of go back from, you know, from Aristotle through Proudhon to the figures that you're working with and your own work to sort of just give us the general contours of what ontological anarchy is. Okay, so arche is a term that existed before Aristotle. It was a usual term in ancient Greek that meant, once again, principle. But at the time, I mean, before Aristotle, what was a principle? It wasn't loaded with ontological meaning. It just meant the first. This is the example that Sherman takes, by the way. When you make a cake, you put first the flour, then the milk, then the eggs. So RK determines the first, but not in a hierarchical sense, but just in a chronological sense. So first didn't mean best. It didn't mean the most important. It, it just meant what comes first in a temporal chronological succession. Then Aristotle arrived on the scene and said, and, and transformed. And Schumann is right to say it was a, it was a, a coinage, you know, he transformed this term in order to confer to it the sense of a hierarchy. So the first will mean from then on the most endowed with the power of beginning and commanding. So then the idea, the RK became the idea of a foundation, what has to come first as a ground, as a foundation. Then, well, let me jump to Rancière, who says some, somewhere that for Aristotle, Democracy is anarchy. Anarchy. How is it possible? How can Aristotle says both archae is the first, the principle, the grounding, etc., and democracy is anarchy? It is because in the beginning, in the politics, in Aristotle's politics, his book, Aristotle says that the foundation of politics is democracy. That in the ideal police, that is the ideal city, all citizens, and this is the foundation of politics really, all citizens are equal. They all have the power of obeying and commanding in turn. So in that sense, if we follow him, it means that if it is true that the RK is radical equality, then it means that paradoxically, the main principle is the absence of principle because everyone is endowed with the same power of commanding and beginning. So no one, ideally, is more important than any other. No one is entitled to govern the others. Or we have to understand government as a cycle. We change, tomorrow is you, tomorrow it will be me, etc. The problem is that gradually, Aristotle discovers that democracy is dangerous because 
even if he affirms that all citizens are equally endowed with the power to command, etc., and obey in turn, he says it's the, at the heart of his book, Politics, and commentators elegantly speak of uh, aporia. It's more than an aporia. It's, it's a contradiction, but th that is perfectly, how to say, authorized by Aristotle. He says this is the contradiction that is inherent to politics. Contradiction according to which certain subjects, certain citizens are more able than others to command and to command. Hmm? They are more able than others to command. And so others are more able to obey. And he attaches this ability to command to what he calls a virtue. And this virtue of commandment, the virtue of RK, consists in the art of seeing, and, and we go back perhaps to the geography, of seeing a totality of a landscape. He says some citizens are limited. They have limited points of view. He says it's like in a ship. Some sailors will just be able to repair the mast, others will, will cook, etc. But the virtuous man is the one who sees all the crew and all the sea and all the landscape all at once, like that. It has a, he or she, but it's a he, has a kind of synoptic view. And from that point on in the book, then Aristotle changes his view and says that democracy is not the ideal regime because of this inequality among citizens. So an arche is initially inscribed in the arche. It's another name for democracy, understood as radical equality. But because of this contradictory inequality within equality, then democracy will become, and on that point, Aristotle is very close to Plato. Democracy will become, will mean disorder risk of rebellion of the poor, risk of uh, chaos, risk of the um, overpowering of the weak over the, the, the strong. So this is how it starts, by this contradiction. So from Aristotle on, anarchy has only meant disorder, chaos, the bad side of democracy, absence of leader, absence of organization, violence, terrorism, what else? Mm, decline. And also, you know, when Hobbes describes the state of nature, he, he characterizes as anarchy. Yes, the state of nature, the unleashing of passions, etc., etc. And it's amazing to see that during the French Revolution, in the debates surrounding the revolutionary governments, anarchists became the pejorative name for les sans-culottes. I mean, the, the, the most radical faction of the revolutionaries were characterized as anarchists by the uh, more conservative ones. And Coudon arrives at that moment when the French Revolution, of course, was over. But the divide between the radicals and the conservative revolutionaries was, was still very active and Napoleon incarnating this double tendency. And that's why he has this fictitious dialogue in What is Property, where he invents an interlocutor asking him, so Proudhon, what are you? Are you a monarchist? He says, no, 
Are you a Republican? He says, no. Are you an aristocrat? No, even less. So what are you? I am an anarchist. And for the first time, anarchist becomes a positive term. It means, and explains that just after the dialogue, it means another order, not a disorder, but an other order in which the inequality between those who command and those who obey, established by Aristotle in the politics, disappears. Where for the first time, Proudhon says, let's, let's stop considering that some people are more able than others, more capable than others to command, which is the logic of the government. Let's, let's destroy this logic, what he calls the governmental prejudice. And that's why Ranciere can say that because he's very um, close to that idea. He says, yes, the, the true democracy is anarchy. And this is the end of the professionalization of politics. No one is more able than anyone else to, to govern. So I hope I, I did <laughs> I unravel all that history. No, that, that's fantastic. And the idea that, that anarchy conceptually speaking, it can be polymorphic or maybe even polyphasic over time is introduced here, which leads me to another question. Among the figures that you're working with within the 20th century milieu, who do you find to be maybe your primary mediator when it comes to thinking ontological anarchy in the terms that you think it? I would say that, well, the first one is Schumann. He wrote his book on uh, anarchy in two languages. There's one, there's a French version and an English one. And the French title is more interesting than the English one because the French title is the principle of anarchy rather than the English one is from principle to anarchy, which is perhaps more logical, chronologically speaking. We have the time of principles than the time of anarchy. Rather than the French, it means that from the beginning, all principles bear a dimension of anarchy. So I was very intrigued by the French title, Principle of Anarchy, the Principle of Anarchy. So what, what is this? And in fact, the book is an interpretation of deconstruction, the Heideggerian deconstruction of ontology as an equivalent of Proudhon's gesture of rehabilitation of anarchism. And for the first time, we had the philosophical idea that what Heidegger did when announcing that kind of self-destruction of ontology was equivalent to the construction of political anarchism. Even if Sherman is very cautious to say, I'm not an anarchist in the sense of Proudhon, but I see something in the deconstruction of ontology, which coincides with the, with the genesis of anarchism in the 19th century. So with that said, in, in the text that you allowed us to read, you talk about how anarchists and Marxists differ on the principle of domination versus separation, where domination is inclusive of a number of axes or vectors by which folks are oppressed, you know, patriarchy, biopolitics, and so forth. Thinking about what Sherman says, do you think articulating an ontological anarchy is an antidote 
or a way, a strategy to sort of deal with politically the, the other dimensions of anarchism? I think so, because what Sherman tries to do in this book is to dismantle the relation of dependence between theory and practice. He says in traditional metaphysics, political practice, like democracy, for example, or the political life of the government, Sarah, is always derived from principles, order, or essence, or ideas. You know, like, for example, Plato says that the politician is always looking at the sky and then noting on his notebook what he sees above. So Schumann says that Heidegger, in his vision of ontology as debased from any kind of ground, etc., is thinking, if one can knows how to read, to read it, is lib liberating practice action, what, what Schumann calls action, from its subordination to theory. And he says that this idea that, that seems very simple is in fact what anarchists, like political anarchists, have not been able to really accomplish to the extent that, according to Sherman, in Sherman's view, political anarchism, traditional political anarchism, still anchors its vision of practice in principles. Even if they say we don't have principles because this is anarchy, they still believe, for example, in human nature, in science, in rationality, in, you know, the, the big revolution or, and, and Schumann says, these are still principles. Rather than Heidegger, Heideggerian deconstruction liberates us, opens the space for a total disappearance of any anchoring of action. And unfortunately, he stops there because I would have liked to, to hear him about what is an action? What can an action be? that would be totally separated from any kind of overarching idea or theory, etc. I have a lot of complicated questions, but I, I have a more basic question, which is what's so wrong with principle? And, I, and I'm sure you have an answer. For me, what I don't see is that there is an implicit normativity in what you're writing and uh, indeed what you're saying, which is that we really ought to be anarchists. We really ought to be ontological anarchists. There's two, there's one question there, which is, is that not itself principle, which I'm sure that is a more obvious question. But then secondly, is, well, what, then why resist principles? Isn't, isn't it just principles of hierarchy, which, which is the problem? What about the, what about a principle of equality or a principle of universalism? What, what, what specifically in your account is, is wrong with that? Okay. So thank you very much. This is very important. I, I was, I was perhaps, um, I wasn't making myself clear then because there's nothing wrong with principles. It's not a matter of judgment. And uh, Schumann is very clear on that. Principles are not bad or they are not. It's just that they are wobbly. They are not able, well, they, they are supposed, this is what they are, foundations. A principle, because they once again means commandment and beginning, they mean foundation. The foundation, the foundation, the ground of the grounding of a house, for example, has to be firm because otherwise the house collapse, collapses. And precisely this firmness of principles is, has never existed. And Schumann explains why. He explains that, you know, that in reality, 
in order to believe that principles can be firm and solid and, and can really support the house, everything that is monstrous or not normative precisely has been just erased from philosophy. That in, in reality, philosophers have always, you know, set apart everything that could threaten the foundation. And for example, Heidegger says, a rose that doesn't bloom, a child who doesn't grow up, a biological living being that is not normal, etc. But fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with a principle, except that a principle is never a principle because it's always fragile, full of contradictions, and unable to, to do what it is supposed to do. That's why philosophers, according to Heidegger, have always tried to strengthen you know, the principle. For example, moving from Greek ontology to Christian ontology, Leibniz says we, we still have to invent, uh, well, to, to, to reveal or to, to unconceal a principle that is even stronger than God, which is the principle of reason. Which, with the principle of reason, we can explain everything. The principle of reason is very firm, etc. So, except that Heidegger says, yes, but the, the problem is that the principle of reason is itself without reason, without a reason. The problem of the principle is that a principle cannot have a principle itself. So it is principle less if you want you know all the all the play when heidegger plays about on uh, grund ab grund which is foundation absence of foundation etc 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 so there's nothing wrong with with a principle except that a principle is never a principle but there's a it, it bears its own dismantlement if I could build on that a little bit, that question, one of the questions I had about uh, the critique, particularly for Sherman of the Arche, is what you describe as the inherent heteronormativity exactly. of the Arche. And is, could you sort of explain what, because there's heteronormativity, which is, 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 is it, does it mean in both senses, in the sense in which its ground is therefore always outside itself, at the same time that it's also presupposed on a model of the domestic, which is inherently contingent and gendered from ancient Greek history. Does it mean both does it mean both of those? Yes, it's a, yes, absolutely first, because it is always outside of itself, because it is currently contradictory. And we saw an example of that with Aristotle, democracy, etc. But also because it combines heteronomous regions of beings. For example, and this also Agamben explains very well in his text, what is a commandment? When Aristotle combat says, arche means commandments and beginning. It's heteronormative because in Greek, arche doesn't mean beginning and commandment, just means beginning. So the combination of beginning and commandment is in itself a monster. Mm. It's two orders of, of elements that, that don't fit together. And also what Schumann calls teleocracy, arche is heteronormative to the extent that even if it means beginning, it also means end. It says that the beginning for Aristotle is not only a beginning, it is also what orients the beginning towards an end. 
you know, the pros and model in Greek. Hmm? This is also heteronormative because why would you have with everything that begins, why should everything that begins have an end in view, which is a teleology? So this is another example of how Aristotle is combining different things that have nothing in common initially. So we don't hear that anymore because we're used to, to, to that. To take this, an application of this to the level of the political, one of the things I quite like is the distinction that, that sort of frames the whole of the book, which is the distinction between the de facto anarchy and the, the dawning anarchy. The anarchy, which I think is, is to be stolen back from the thief who is the philosopher who has been running wild of anarchy without being properly anarchic about it. And yeah, I mean, can we, so can you give us sort of an example of this particular kind of critique as you apply it to what you call the, the de facto anarchy, a kind of hegemonic anarcho-capitalist language, which has taken over so many spheres from, you know, crypto to, well, the, I'd say the British government, to be honest, mm -hmm. but <laughs> who knows? In, in a very provocative way, I would say that when philosophers and intellectuals, let's say leftists, of course, radical thinkers, are still debating about Marxism, capitalists have understood that this was over and that the, the, the true problem was anarchism. As always, capitalism is uh, ahead of its critiques. And I'm sure, I mean, this is my by view, and it has been very, sometimes very ill-received by traditional anarchists, that in fact, capitalism at the moment is accomplishing a kind of anarchistic turn in which it has stolen from traditional anarchism, its vision of horizontality, its vision of life as a platform, using technology to make us believe that we were, that we are managers of ourselves, that we can exchange without intermediaries. We can rent our apartment. Well, this global uberization of life, borrowing from anarchist thinking, all these, uh, yeah, all, all these uh, ideas of absence of thirds, you know, of intermediaries. Catherine, because our podcast, I would say a large number of our listeners are very interested in the work of Deleuze and Deleuze and Gattari. And as I look at the, the chapters that you sent us, Deleuze's name is conspicuously absent from the number of thinkers that you have identified as thinkers of ontological anarchy, although I know in some places you have mentioned him. I was hoping that you could comment on what you believe the relationship between Deleuze and Deleuze and Gattari's work is to the work of anarchism. We can even set aside the thing where they identify themselves as Marxists, and, and, and I'll identify to what perhaps I think some of the challenges to thinking Deleuze and Deleuze and Gattari as Marxists, which is perhaps the pure positivity of their ontology, you know, this reluctance to, to think the negative in certain ways in which we see so many anarchist thinkers today finding even new ways to think the negative and, and think anarchism as a negativity. But at the same time, with Deleuze and Deleuze and Gattari, we have this affirmation of polymorphism. Mm -hmm. And the idea, like you're saying with capitalism, capitalism adopts from anarchism this notion of a, a kind of horizontality, a flattening out of the plane of economic and social existence in a way that actually prevents certain kinds of differences from emerging different forms of life. And so in this sense, I want to reclaim Deleuze and Deleuze and Gattari as mediators for an anarchist thought. 
I'm wondering where you think they belong in this conversation. So, yes, that's a very important question. And for me, clearly, Deleuze and Guattari are closer to anarchism than to Marxism. I, I never saw them as really Marxist. Hmm? And they have, it is true, a very strong concept of anarchy. In particular, in this text, I just forgot the title, Adam Help, Adrian Help. You know, this text on Plotinus, I, I mentioned in the, it in the book in which Deleuze says that Plotinus puts all beings on the same plane, the anarchist plane. So there are texts by, by Deleuze and perhaps also by Guattari about ontological anarchism in which they affirm once again this kind of evenness and absence of privilege of all beings. And of course, it also reverberates this thinking into their vision of the territories and et cetera, et cetera. And the polymorphism of desire, of metamorphoses, et cetera. I think that's in what is philosophy, right? Yes, what it is in what is philosophy where, where they talk about Plotinus and, and yes. So in fact, I didn't give you my chapter on Foucault because it is not yet translated into English. So you couldn't read it, but I, but I develop on Deleuze within the Foucault chapter. And the, I try to understand their understanding, their own understanding of the problematic of governmentality in Foucault. And this is for me where the problem is with Deleuze's, I will just say Deleuze and not every time Deleuze and Guadalajara, with Deleuze's anarchism which is that is still very attached to the concept of uh, affects and particularly of auto-affection. And for example, it says that Foucault's concept of governmentality in the last seminars, where Foucault insists on the individual way of uh, governing oneself, is precisely grounded in auto-affection. They say self-government is auto-affection. The self is governing itself through a logic of, yes, auto-affection. And this is very problematic for me because, first of all, Foucault doesn't use this term, but this is perhaps secondary. But the problem is that auto-affection, that they refer to Kant and autonomy huh, in Kant's morals, ethics, auto-affection is the very is the very structure of commandment and obedience to be able to affect oneself as Kant says in the first critique is the capacity to command to oneself and his conception of autonomy as you know the categorical imperative etc is once again this capacity to yes to command to oneself and this is precisely what anarchists are criticizing, that freedom cannot be an auto-affection. Freedom cannot be a commandment, even if this commandment is my, well, the commandment of myself over myself. And unfortunately, in spite of all their magnificent developments on the territory, on polymorphism, on ontological anarchy, etc., Deleuze and Guattari, and Deleuze in particular, remain attached to this logic of self-affection, auto-affection, the government of the self. And they even see it, Deleuze sees it in Spinoza, 
in the knowledge of the third kind of knowledge. Where in the Vincennes lectures, Deleuze says somewhere that God in Spinoza affects himself. So this logic of self-affection, auto-affection, that is so derivative of commandment and obedience is for me what, well, the contradictory germ (laughs) that infects Deleuze's philosophy. I would need more time to to explain that. I have something, but perhaps only because you say the word contradiction. I I just, and because I am sort of more, you know, historically sympathetic towards that kind of idea of, of law onto oneself as, you know, the kind of, you're never escaping law and mm-hmm. might think that you're escaping law, but actually really you're just giving yourself a new one and it might not be as good as the one you had before. But, but, but a lot of your argument I find very convincing. And, and I wanted, I, I take your argument basically in that, in this opening chapter, to, you know, in response to what you said earlier was, is that, well, principled and indeed hierarchies and indeed the political always fail, right? There's a sense in which I think you say that political cannot itself be, polit- you know, cannot be fully political. It always includes something external to it. And, and to an extent, the principle, it's always, it attempts to kind of give you some kind of certainty and it always fails to do so. And I'm interested, therefore, in the manner of that or the mode of that negation, because it then becomes quite important for your argument that that the part that is anarchic in, in, in the political is the non-governable as opposed to the ungovernable. And obviously, given that the first two words, two letters of the word anarchy imply a negative, and given, of course, yeah. the kind of complex developments of negation, both in 20th century philosophy and indeed in your own work, I'm interested in, in how you're seeing that playing out both kind of purely logically, ontologically, but also politically, what is the modes of negation that produces the non-governable? What is the non in this phrase? Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. Yes. What is the non? But this brings me me back to Adam's question. I forgot to answer, but it's linked with yours about the domesticate, arcade domesticate. So very briefly, Aristotle says clearly that politics is what breaks with the domestic at home, in the home, in the oikos, there is the father who is the master and who overpowers the slaves, the women, and, and, and the children. And clearly, politics starts when where the, the oikos stops, which means that because of democracy, a governor cannot be considered a master or a father. But because of what I call the contradiction inherent to Aristotelian politics, because in reality, some people are more able than others to govern. We still find the logic of the master. We still find the logic of the arcade domestique within politics. And that's why politics fails. And this, I'm now turning to your question. And this is what Rancière says in a very beautifully radical way that politics is always, I mean, traditional politics is always an arcade politics. That is the pure repetition of the arcade domestique. That even if we think we are in a, in democracies, we are in fact obeying masters or an oligarchy that is very close in its functioning to the oikos, you know, the Greek 
oikos. So as long as we are functioning with the governmental prejudice, as Proudhon says, as long as we have governments and as long as we believe in governments, we will always be entrapped in this logic of commanding and obeying. And this logic of commanding and obeying is always linked with the arche domestique. There cannot be any form of commanding and obeying that would be different from the logic of the master. And that's why Kantian autonomy or auto-affection is also a derivation of this logic. So the ungovernable is not enough a resistance to governments. Because the ungovernable, understood as, as, for example, resistance or rebellion or demonstration, even if all these forms are perfectly necessary and legitimate, they still participate in the logic of governments because they try to negotiate, they try to discuss. For me, the ungovernable is the manifestation of what cannot be accepted, but still negotiable. For example, all the strikes that we see at the moment in the UK or in France are modes of the ungovernable. Like, no, stop, we cannot accept that. So we get on strike, we go on strike, as long as you don't want to negotiate. But the logic of government per se is not uh, challenged. The non-governable designates for me something that in each of us is not resisting the logic of government, but perfectly alien to it, perfectly indifferent to it, non-concerned with it. It's this part of the individual that has to be very violently repressed in education, at school or family education, etc., very early, which is this part that for me is common between human subjects and animals a part that can always only be mastered. I mean, it is true that repressed, killed. This part of us, this part of the psyche and of the body also, this part of our being that doesn't understand what it is about. And I still, that still at my age, you know, I still don't understand what obeying means. And, well, or what, why we have to. I know this is very abstract, but at the same time, I think this is what anarchists try, are trying to bring to the fore. You know? If we, if we fight against the government, it's not because we think that the government is bad. It's because there's something in all of us that don't fit with this logic. I'm very glad that you brought up the topic of education because this was one of the portions of, of, of my questions here where I was going to go off script a little bit and ask you what you think the relationship between ontological anarchy and, and rethinking anarchy in general, how does it bring to bear upon the way that we understand education, maybe not even simply at the, the elementary level, but even in academia today. And I'm thinking about the left too, and I'm thinking about the reactions that were had to our previous conversation where we have some folks who identify with a form of political anarchism who express a kind of antipathy towards what happens in the ivory towers of, of academia. 
At the same time, I think there's some just reasoning for this, which is, you know, we see the university, for example, being more and more taken over by this sort of neoliberal axiom. It's transforming it from the inside, essentially into a business model. I I mean, I was a, a university teacher myself and, you know, I can't imagine myself going back into that environment having experienced the freedom of doing conversations on a platform like this. At least I wouldn't want to. And so I was wondering, not that I think mending this antipathy is the most important political project (laughs) that that we have, but what do you see as being a way out of the problems? What is the sort of practical dimension of the thinking that we're talking about today with respect to professors? teachers, the way that we organize the university. Because another thing to think about, too, is the pressures of cyber anarchy today on the university, especially with respect to artificial intelligence, chat GPT, and how it has forced this conversation about how students are assessed, the relationship and the hierarchies between teachers and students. I'm wondering if you had formulated any thoughts in that vein. Yeah, the, the problem being that, as I say in, in the introduction to the book, that we are walking on the same ground, you know, de facto anarchism and, and dawning anarchism are walking on the same platform. And I'm, I'm not playing with words here. We are using the same modes of expression, which mm. is definitely a technology. Hmm? It is impossible today uh, to think of anarchism without thinking technology because horizontality is hmm, technological today. So all the, well, the stakes are how to, even if we use the same means, how to avoid instrumentalization, commodification, normalization, uniformization of, of thinking, et cetera. And I think that academia today is, is in a very, well, is very far away from any quest for emancipation from these models. On the contrary, the academia today it's just obeying. It's just following and, and even instituting new norms and, and well, obeying that global model of, yes, of standardization of, of knowledge. Yeah. So, but I've been convinced that everything interesting today happens out, outside mm. universities. I mean, for me, everything that is really interesting uh, happens in the, in the gaps, you know, happens in the mar- at the margins, like for example, what we're doing at, at the moment, or when, when you talk with people that you don't know, when, when you talk in the absence of any master, of any norm, etc. So I think that the concept of underground, even, well, that's the paradox of having to build a horizon- horizontal underground. I mean, everything that is interesting today and valuable for a radical thinking never happens in the Mm. institution. Right. And I mean, an additional caveat with what we do is, I mean, we we have to make a living somehow. Please like and subscribe, join our Patreon, buy our merchandise. I mean, of course, there's a a kind of limit that I think we impose upon ourselves so that we can maintain, you know, a semblance of integrity to what we do. But with that said, what do you think are some ways? So for example, you know, you did research on on cryptocurrency. And, and clearly we identified what we could call the, the sort of libertarian dangers of yes. that. But what are, the, what, what are the kinds of opportunities that you see right now in the extant technology? Since we do occupy this 
the same plane or same platform? Have you seen strategies that accord with your vision of ontological anarchy? Maybe besides, you know, this kind of discussion, what, what are some other things that, that we should be looking um, at? I'm very interested in artificial intelligence, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. and I refuse to, to see it as necessarily, well, name us with what we were just talking about, like, you know, uniformization and merchandization, et cetera. Mm. You know, the, the, the artist that designed the cover of the book you mentioned, my book, you know, the collection, I forgot, Plastic Explosion. Plastic. Yep. But his, his name is Gregory Chatonsky and he refuses to say artificial intelligence, it says AI means artificial imagination. And that there's a way to use artificial intelligence to create and not only to imitate or obey. That the potential of artificial intelligence is creative and not reproductive. That artificial intelligence is not or not only a vector of normalization, but also of, it's a creation of utopias. And so, for example, he writes novels that are a dialogue between his writing and the machine's writing. So he, he enters into dialogues with, with, the, with the systems. And I think this is very interesting. We have a vision of artificial intelligence that is totally reductive, and this is the way it is presented most of the time, as just something threatening that calculates faster than us that will, that competes with us. It's not the way it is in reality. I'm sure there are plenty of ways of using AI systems in creative and utopian ways. This morning, it's, it's funny because this is Acid Horizon. And this morning I was discussing with the students who creates, created a, f- a few years ago, a new platform, philosophical platform called Opium. So this morning was Opium Philosophy. And tonight is acid philosophy. And they are using AI. Yes, here also initiate dialogues between fictitious philosophers and real philosophers. So mm. philosophers are discussing with machines. And, so, and it's very interesting. So I'm sure that AI is full of pedagogical, philosophical, artistic potentials that needs that need to be exploited. Well, to, to round, I guess, uh, as we're coming sort of the hour mark, I mean, one of the questions... I have in relation to the discussion of governance and in relation to technology specifically is the question of like cybernation, cybernetics. So is, is, do you see an, do you see an inherent hostility between anarchy and cybernetics, particularly the idea of the, the origins of, of, yes, the word cyber in, in the Greek term for piloting or governance? I don't think of governance. Is, is, is there, is there a risk there that with in some anarchist interactions with technology, or maybe any potentially, I mean, if we want to go like fully Heideggerian with it, that it would simply sort of replace a vertical system of domination with potentially a, a horizontal system of control. You know, this is sort of the Lersian. Yes, sort of yes, of thing. course, you're, you're right. It, it is true that cyber means yeah. head, like capital, yeah. etc. So commandment. But this is what I explained in the conclusion. You know, the Originally, I mean, the creators of cybernetics and the internet were anarchists, cyber anarchists. I mean, not libertarians, but on the contrary, revolutionary anarchists saying that could be, should have been the genuine democracy. I mean, the, the, the media that would, that should have allowed for democracy to really emerge. 
like radical equality, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there is a fundamental dimension of anarchism, revolutionary anarchism in cybernetics, in spite of the name. I mean, here also, I think the internet and all the uh, platforms that are, are full of potentials, creative potentials, et cetera, that, that need to be expressed. B, do you have anything? I can never stop, but I think that's kind of my place to end. No, me, me, me neither. <laughs> I think that's quite a bit, because otherwise I'll stop talking about Hegel or something. Well, I've just about exhausted my questions. I can say for myself that I'm very interested in your work. I, I think this year, once Adam and I get finished editing our book, I would like to turn to a study of Reiner Sherman. That's the one thing that, that you have gifted to me is this, this burgeoning interest in his work. And we can't wait for your book to come out, Stop Thief. And, and when will that be translated into English? Oh, we, we are at the very, we are in the process. The okay. translator and I were working very hard. So normally uh, the translation should be submitted in two months and then it will go into production. So I would say at the end of, of this year, I hope so. Is there anything else that you want to say to listeners and fans of Catherine Malibu before we go? Well, no. <laughs> no, I, I wish, I mean, I wish I would have explained more clearly. Oh, no, yeah. you were fantastic. And I'm sure if, if you would like to come back, you're welcome anytime. So thank you so much. I love yeah. your platform. I mean, this Excellent. is exactly what, what needs to be done.